0: I think it's easy to look back and this model looks like it's so obvious, but for the first four or five years that we were doing this, there was nothing obvious about this. And basically everyone told us we were going to lose 100% of our money. And all the finance folks now are like, oh, this is great. You built a new asset class. But all Andrew and I knew every single day is that we were trying to, to fix life for a founder.
1: I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. We give you access to the lives and stories of world-class entrepreneurs so you can grow your career and expand your mindset. Today, I'm talking to Michelle Romano the successful serial entrepreneur and co-founder of ClearBank, which is the world's largest e-commerce investor and itself a tech startup. They don't take equity in the companies they back. Instead, they're paid a percentage of revenue until they're paid back, plus a 6 to 12% fee. Now, the idea for the business came to her whilst filming Canada's Dragon's Den, the equivalent of Shark Tank in the States. Yep, that's right. She's also a dragon, and she was the youngest ever anywhere in the world. It's an amazing story, and we'll come onto all of that in a bit. But first, we need to rewind and talk about crude oil, coffee, and caviar. Over to you, Michelle.
0: My parents both grew up very poor, right? My dad was raised in a two-bedroom farmhouse without a bathroom in in northern Saskatchewan, which is like a little kind of farming place in Canada. And my mom grew up in um, Slovakia and came to Canada and learned kind of her first word of English at the age of 12. And so... My dad figured out he was smart. He worked his way up an oil and gas company, and so I really grew up in a pretty traditional household. My mom was a nurse; she took care of us, and I was one of four children. And so I basically never got my way. I learned I had to share everything. We shared an ice cream cone, <laughs> and then I just had these very hardworking parents. And so my childhood life—I remember there was four children. There was three girls, and then there was finally a boy at the very end. And so I think my dad really treated me as like his firstborn son. And so there was no job I couldn't do. Like, I remember it was like, Michelle has to mow the lawn. Michelle has to like change the tires. Michelle, it's like, you're in grade seven. It is time for you to start reading The Economist because this is what smart people read. I think that I grew up with this mentality that there wasn't like girl tasks or boy tasks. There was just like, you just learn how to do stuff. And I was kind of always really grateful for... That experience and and my my parents just always believing in me from a very early age. But they weren't entrepreneurs. And uh, I remember telling them at a very young age, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I don't think they could figure out why. And I used to watch this television show called Venture in Canada, where they would follow these entrepreneurs and sometimes they would go bankrupt and sometimes they would lose everything. And I actually remember like almost physically feeling like I would vomit for these founders after watching this show and somehow ended up choosing that path.
1: And did you struggle with anything as a child particularly or were you kind of just naturally gifted?
0: No, I don't think I was naturally gifted. So here's what happened as I spent six years of my childhood in a in a little place called regina and then when i was in grade seven um we moved to calgary i had two friends in regina and they were both girls and we were like a little trio and i distinctly remember and knew that both of them were smarter than me. They could both read novels faster than me. They could both play piano better than me and they both could do their math assignments faster than me. And so when your sample size in the world is only two other people and you feel like the dumbest, I felt like an underdog all the time as a kid. And I think school over rewards being a perfectionist. You know, I remember my first couple of years of entrepreneurship, I had to unlearn all of that. I had to learn that entrepreneurship is about doing things at four times the speed of anyone else, but always performing at between kind of 65 and 75%. That if you're launching products that are 100% with perfect title pages, you are far too late. And that became a a big piece of my unlearning in my early 20s that I don't think was was helpful from the academic system.
1: Okay. Now, I know that um, you got started in entrepreneurship quite early, right? So... The first thing you did, if I'm not mistaken, is a coffee shop that you founded at university that's still there today, is that right?
0: That's correct, so, I mean, of course. Have you been back to frequent it even though you don't drink coffee anymore? Yeah, oh my gosh, it was called the Tea Room. So we had lots of incredible tea and uh, I, you know, before COVID I would go back every single year, it's still there whatever, 14 years later. I mean, this is what happens when you have a dad in the oil and gas industry. Of course, you're 19 years old. And the first thing you are is a bleeding heart environmentalist. So I said, look, let's see if we can create a truly sustainable business. One that has no consumer waste. We'll take a simple high margin business like coffee and see if we can do this. And ended up working on this in my undergrad, opening up opening the tea room up in my fourth year and it had uh, had really cool environmental initiatives we had all these like red regular worms that would eat through all of our compost and then we would sell that to farmers like it was very creative and um, I'm genuinely so grateful for that experience because if I wouldn't have had a piece of early success I would have never started thinking that I could start my career by being an entrepreneur as opposed to taking a job and it was really this experience opening up the tea room, meeting two founders in undergrad. I mean, I met these two guys, Anatoly and Ryan. Anatoly, I'm still incredibly close with today. And we just started playing what's the next million dollar idea and spent our fourth year completely brainstorming what we should do until believe it or not, we figured out that worldwide supply of caviar, of all products, I mean, we had never even eaten caviar. I'd never gone fishing before, right? Like this was so absurd. We figured out the worldwide supply of caviar was down by 95% because the world had overfished the Caspian Sea. And so we were crazy enough to fly down to one of the plants in in the US. I remember we bought these like $300 tickets, which seemed like so expensive at the time. We showed up and we said, hey, we're like students doing a research project. Like, will you give us a tour of your facility? I I can't believe they allowed us to tour their farm. And we built a business plan to start a caviar business. And we won about $100,000 in business plan competitions. And that gave us the money to actually graduate, say no to our job offers, move to the East Coast, and genuinely build a fishery from scratch. And that's how my career started.
1: And when you say the East Coast, you mean the East Coast of Canada?
0: Yeah, the East Coast of Canada. You know, this is exactly what it sounds like boats, fishermen, my hands knee deep in fish, like the whole nine yards. And our thesis was right chefs couldn't find the product. So they loved it. But the problem was we went into a giant recession in 2008. And there I am, 21 years old, selling the world's most unnecessary luxury product. And certainly at that moment, if I hadn't realized it before, I realized then, like the world owes you absolutely nothing, that everything can fall apart in a second, that it can be your fault, it can be the market's fault, but it doesn't matter. But I was gonna have to pivot if I wanted to be successful.
1: How does one pivot a caviar business? Like just take us through the fact. So you've moved over to the East Coast. You know, what, what was your setup? Had you taken investment? How much were you in for? What was your actual how many employees did you have? What was the setup like? Like set the scene in two thousand and eight when this when this shift happened.
0: So we had moved to New Brunswick. We had set up this fishery. We had, you know, multiple fishermen. I mean, these fish were exceptionally valuable. They could be worth between $5 to $10,000 each. So you actually didn't need a, a many people to make a lot of money. And we had sold to probably 100 high-end restaurants and hotels across Canada. We had $100,000 of this prize money we had won from doing business plan competitions. Like this was so hard. I mean, between getting the licenses, figuring out the supply chain, figuring out how to make caviar ourselves. Some people are like, how did you know how to make caviar? And I always say in the spirit of truth, we watched a series of YouTube videos that were all in Russian and (laughs) to figure this out. And so at this point, we have spent, I think we had all but $15,000 left in our Evandale Caviar bank account. And I remember that fall, we went to three different cities to sell the product, right? So I went back to the Know Western Canada, Ryan went back to Montreal, totally went to Toronto, and we're like going to visit all these chefs, we're selling this product. And I literally remember coming home one day and my dad being like, I think we've probably lost half of our money in the last 24 hours. And I was like, What? And you're right, Dan, there is no way to pivot a caviar business. And so we ended up spending a year and a half unsuccessfully trying other businesses. And I mean, I don't share some of these stories, but these were like gritty businesses. I remember one of them is like, we thought that employees, um, this is before snacks were a thing at tech companies, but like, we were like, employees should have fruit at their office. So we should start like a fruit delivery service. And I remembered knocking on office doors, literally trying to sell fruit deliveries. And I put this website together called City Fruit. We tried so many different businesses. The recession ended up getting so bad. I remember I took a job at a big retailer. I was there for a year. All I could think of is e-commerce is blowing up. And I got back together with the same two guys that I started the caviar business with. And I go, we have to just start an e-commerce company. And we only had the $15,000 left that was in this Evandale caviar bank account. And we decided to launch... Bytopia. And we didn't have enough money to pay Canadian software developers. So we had to use overseas software developers. We spent all of our money launching at a trade show. And when we launched at that trade show, I still remember, you know, our website didn't work. It was basically like a JPEG, which is a picture of a website. And the only button that worked was like the buy button that took you to a PayPal page. And from there, I never guessed that, you know, Bytopia and and the the e-commerce company would have become like we became one of the fastest growing companies in Canada. We bought, you know, 10 of our competitors We're now publicly traded as a merge in Canada. And more importantly, like we were bootstrapped for five years. Nobody gave me any capital. And I remember trying to raise capital and the deals were either like, well, we want 50% of your company, or these terms are just so unattractive. You know, one of our early stories, and e-commerce really did shape what happened later. And so people don't remember this because it's now so easy to set up a Shopify store and get payment processing in a day, right? You can set up your Square account and you can start processing payments in a day. But when we first started in e-commerce, it was like four weeks to get a payment processor. So the first mistake I made is I applied for five payment processors under my own personal name, which took my credit score from something that was completely normal to something that was like completely subpar. and <laughs> It took like six years to recover. That was the first thing that happened. We decided to go with PayPal. PayPal makes you sign this whatever 20 page agreement in size six font somewhere on a website that you do a check mark. And and we're about a year into, you know, Vitopia, the e-commerce company, and we have a deal that goes really sour. We sold a bunch of, you know, coupons for a vendor that didn't honor them. So a lot of people were coming back to us looking for refunds. And so your chargeback ratio goes up a little bit. And I still remember, I mean, I think I'm 24 years old at this point. And I remember getting a phone call from like six PayPal lawyers. And they're like, we want to let you know that you guys are personally liable for everything you have processed on your PayPal account. And Dan, all I remember is that I had $10,000 in my bank account. And I knew we had processed over a million dollars in payments. And I was like, this company is going to take everything I have. Plus, they're going to bankrupt me. And it was terrible. I mean, I was 24. I woke up every single night at three in the morning with cold sweats for almost six weeks. And we just tried to like get ourselves out of this mess. And it was at that point in my career that I understood what a personal guarantee was and that companies were not fucking around when they took a personal guarantee. They were going to come after all of your assets and probably your parents' assets if you couldn't pay and you were young like me. And I remember thinking that was so incredibly unfair for the entrepreneurs that already have the hardest job in the world, that one day I would get, a, get around to solving that problem.
1: Which obviously, you know, leads nicely into what did happen. However, just, just going back onto what did happen with, with that company then. So let's follow that journey through what, what happened and where did it take you?
0: Bytopia continued to grow. We continued to acquire other e-commerce companies. It's so funny because this is such a trendy model today with Thrasio and all these companies that have raised big roll-up funds. Um, but we effectively started doing this seven or eight years ago. And so now Emerge is public. Um, from there, we had another you know small project that started off very small and then got very big. It was an app that was early in the AI space that I sold to Groupon in um, 2014. So I got to move to Chicago and meet the Groupon team and understand how a big tech company operated. Then one day in the office, I remember we had a customer support line and Dragon's Den called and an intern picked up the phone and said, Michelle, they're looking for you at Dragon's Den. And everyone in the office knew this because we had kind of a small, like 30 person office. Right. And I was like, this has got to be a joke or like a prank call or something. And I got on the phone and they go, no, we've seen you in a magazine article. We'd like for you to audition. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm sure they have the wrong person, but I should just go and do it. <laughs> and so I went, and the way you audition for Dragon Stand is they mock up the show. So they have eight other people that are auditioning and they bring in an entrepreneur and they're pitching and everyone's talking over each other. And I couldn't get any words in. And I just felt completely deflated as I left there. And one of the producers came up to me as I was just leaving and they go, we're thinking of producing a web series. And wanted to see if you were interested in being a part of it. And in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, that's so nice. But that's what they like, tell the losers. <laughs> that's what they tell the people that, that didn't get the chair. And um, believe it or not, they called me back. And we made this little web series that was a kind of a tech version of Dragon's Den called Next Gen Den. Smaller deals, all tech. I got three days of filming in. I got to figure out what television was like, how to build sound bites. Then that fall, I was asked to join the main show and I was 28 years old. I was the youngest dragon, I think, in everywhere the, the show is made. It's called Shark Tank in some jurisdictions, it's called Dragon's Den in, in, um, in others, but it's all the same Sony format. And, you know, I then moved from, from being this like gritty kind of entrepreneur hustler into being an investor for the first time in my life.
1: What comes after hustler and Investor. Stay tuned to find out about the founding and building of Clearbank and how to keep going with your idea after hearing no 249 times. Back in a mo. Of the six UK unicorns who have exited, can you guess what they all have in common? They've all been advised by our latest partner Deloitte, and there's good reason for that. I know the joy and pain that comes with scaling a company fast. You need to focus on growth, your team, and customers, but often your attention is taken away by must-dos in areas like finance and compliance. I'm talking about headaches, like making sure you're charging VAT correctly on a new product, or your intellectual property is watertight, or having the right corporate structure for international expansion. These are complicated areas that you're really not trying to innovate in. So you need a partner like Deloitte, who knows them inside out so you don't screw them up, and you get more time and increase your chances of success. So Whether you're an early stage startup or an international scale-up, check out Deloitte's high growth team to help find the right answers faster. Search Deloitte Private to find out more. So go on then, how do you go from Dragon's Den to investing $1.6 billion in e-commerce businesses?
0: I just joined the show. I am feeling like I don't belong there. Um, And not because anyone was unwelcoming, just because I'm just so nervous. I've never done television. I'm trying to figure out Everything from how I sit up to straight to how I how I talk to entrepreneurs to how I get these deals done. And one of the things that most people don't know about the show is that we film, we do 250 pitches in 17 days. So we do this all in a two-week block. And so a lot of things start to crystallize because even if you're a VC, you're not seeing 10 pitches a day. And the bias on Dragon's Den is always to see consumer brands and e-commerce companies because no one at home sitting on their couch is interested in a, in a B2B software company, <laughs> Um, And so I'm seeing all these consumer products and all the pitches are starting to sound the same. I'm here looking for a hundred grand, I'm willing to give up 5% of my company. And when you ask those founders what they needed the capital for, what's remarkable is that they said two things, always. I need to go buy customer acquisition, which is I need to go buy Facebook and Google ads, or I need to go buy my inventory. And I just sat back in my chair after hearing the like 20th pitch that sounded the exact same and I'm like, Hold up, this makes no sense. That founders are giving up equity and control of their business to do something with a fixed return. That was the magic of Facebook. Inject a dollar, you got three dollars in sales out. Buy a piece of inventory for fifty cents, sell it for a dollar fifty. Like there was a there was a fixed return on these items. And equity capital. Is true risk capital. It's actually zero to one risk. It's you want to build rockets and see if you can go to Mars? I have no idea if this is going to be successful, but that is equity like risk. Expanding into a new country is equity like risk. And so on the show, Dan, I'm like, okay, just going to throw this out there. Different deal type. Why don't I give you the same $100,000 you're looking for? But instead of taking 5% of your company, which I will own forever, I want 5% of your revenue until you pay me back my capital. Plus a 6% flat fee. So for a hundred grand, you were going to pay me back $106,000. The capital wasn't very expensive. This was not a loan. There was no personal guarantee or fixed payment timelines or compounding interest. It was a true rev share. I got a little bit of return on my money. And the founder that day was like hundred percent. I'm taking Michelle's deal. <laughs> and that really got Andrew and me thinking about what this could be. And I never thought that this, I mean, this is what became ClearBank. You know, we have now invested more than $1.6 billion into 4,000 different founders around the world. We invested 30 million pounds in the UK even before we launched the country, which is as large as most seed stage funds. And more importantly, we've allowed all of these founders to regain control of their company because they've been able to grow without giving up equity. And the other important characteristic is, so I did the first deal myself. I said, look, the only hitch of my deal is I have to see your Facebook ad account because I know what I'm looking for because I ran an e-commerce company for so many years. But as we started doing more of these, we started building a bunch of data science where you had to plug in the accounts, the apps that run your business, and then we would use data science to figure out what your unit economics were and, and what your business looked like, and we would give you a term sheet in 20 minutes. This process would all be very quick. And by using just data science to determine who gets capital and how much capital they get. When we looked back three years in, our, our portfolio looked totally different. I mean, we had backed eight times more women than the venture capital industry average. We had backed founders in every state in America. I mean, in the in the US, 80% of VC goes into four states in America. The same thing in the UK, 70% of our founders lived outside of London. And we had just totally changed the game for founders. And have inspired this model in in many other places around the world, and so it's been um, it's been an absolutely surreal experience, to be honest, uh, to be a part of something this big. How long has it been going so far? So we started in twenty fifteen, so this is year six for us, and so it's another important lesson is that even. When you are like, well, Michelle had started five businesses before this, she must have known <laughs> what she was doing. This e-commerce product was the third thing that we tried at ClearBank. And this was the, the one that finally worked. We originally started doing um, capital products for Uber drivers and then for Airbnb hosts. And we had run, we were, got this idea from the show. We were running this little side experience on e-commerce and it turned out to just be a massive idea. And now it's not just capital we provide. It's the network of other founders. It's a ton of advice. We give you recommendations on which partners you should be using. We have a buy-sell network where we've, you know, when founders are looking to sell their company, the last company we sold was for $17 million. It was game-changing for the founder. You know, we've been able to build a clear angel product where we're able to do uh, angel investments and in deals that are for companies that are as small as $2,000 of monthly revenue. And so it's just continued to expand as we've been able to grow. It's amazing. Um, how
1: did you actually get it started then? So who are your co-founders? Um, how did you meet them? And most importantly, I guess, you know, how did you actually get the company off the ground? Did you use all your own capital? Did you raise money?
0: So Andrew and I, so Andrew's uh, my, my partner as well. So we are in my Chicago apartment after the Groupon acquisition. And, you know, I'm like, well, we should start a company. <laughs> so You know, the first thing that we chose was our industry, which was FinTech, which we just thought was going to go through such an explosion of change. But what made us such good co-founders in this business is that Andrew had raised a ton of venture capital before this. So he had raised money for three different companies. You know, he moved down to the Valley in the early days, uh, worked with Chamath, and so had been basically hired at every other startup to come in, raise around. And he understood kind of like the secret of venture capital but he also understood the downside. He had seen, you know, a board completely change their mind and get rid of a whole executive team. He had seen how incredibly costly this would. He had seen, you know, how you get on a roller coaster that you you really can't get off after after you do this. And, you know, my experience was I had bootstrapped all of my companies before ClearBank. And so our view was the same that if we were going to build this business, for true equity like risk like for us to build new products and expand into other markets you know where we could completely fail we would use venture capital but the capital that we gave to founders would always be effectively debt capital like we would always and we always said like we wanted the clear bank for clear bank as we as we scaled and grew but we were able to do that with our with our series of debt funds and so you know we've ended up raising a lot of capital most of that capital is is you know going towards uh, these 4000 entrepreneurs that we have backed But yeah, it wasn't easy. And I mean, most people, they're now like, oh yeah, revenue sharing agreements and capital as a service. Like this is an industry and acquisition as a service. But they forget what it felt like in the early days. I mean, I remember in, what was this? 2016, 2017, flying to New York and going to Wall Street. And Andrew and I did 250 meetings and we got 249 no's. So we were trying to raise our first debt facility. People were like, you guys don't understand credit. You were giving small businesses capital with no personal guarantees. And we said, no, the data is going to have a much better indication of who's going to be successful and who won't be successful. And I think the rudest person just looked at me and they said, miss, I don't think you understand anything in credit. (laughs) It's actually like pretty extraordinary to see that we've gotten to, you know, this kind of scale based on all the other comments. And it's, it's a great lesson for entrepreneurs because you know, there's now lots of finance people that come up to us and they're like, wow, you've built a new asset class and you've really figured this out. We never came at this from the finance perspective. We were never Wall Street people. Andrew and I were founders at our core, and we deeply understood the challenges of how hard and how in many ways, elitist venture capital was, venture capitalists don't take cold email intros. You have to know someone in their network. And so that means if you don't come from those circles, it's impossible. But And if you go to Stanford or Harvard, it's very easy to meet VCs. But if you're not there, it's very hard. And we all know intuitively that the best entrepreneurs in the world often don't come from a lot of privilege because they've really had to figure out a lot of things and build a lot of grit on their own. I think it's easy to look back and... This model looks like it's so obvious. But all Andrew and I knew every single day is that we were trying to to fix life for a founder because founders have limited access. They have no time. And so this process of fundraising taking three to six months, you completely take your high off the ball and that we could do something that was far more, that was just less dilutive than, than what existed today. And at the end of the day, founders should own their business because they're doing all of the work right you look at this recent crop of ipos dan and it's like you know even the most successful founders of the last 10 years they're owning six seven percent of of their companies and we're taking this as it should be normal i mean when bill gates ipo'd microsoft like He owned half of Microsoft, right? You know, the understanding in Silicon Valley used to be that by the time a company goes public and companies were going public earlier back then, but it's, you know, founders should own a third and employees should own a third of the company and investors should own a third. Now we're at the point where investors are owning, you know, 80, 90% of these companies. And so ultimately founders are starting to think about that. And they're starting to think about, okay, if I'm going to do all this work, I should think about how I retain as much ownership as possible.
1: Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. Um, It is a massive problem. And it's a massive problem, particularly somewhere like the UK. I'd love to know what your experience has been um, observationally in Europe, even versus the USA and and Canada.
0: So the first thing is, I don't think the US doesn't have, (laughs) it's not perfect, but the Innovation ecosystem there is unique. And I, I would actually say everywhere else in the world is a lot different than that. Um, and so I don't think this is a specifically a, a UK issue or a Europe issue. It is actually, I mean, it's it, we have the same issue in Canada, where people are asking for a bigger percentage of your company, they want more traction, they are willing to take less risk. They don't celebrate failure the same way. And I think it is one of the reasons the United States, despite all of their challenges have been so successful in building just incredible tech companies. And it is, it is one of the few things we should emulate. Here's the reality of being an entrepreneur. Failure is a byproduct of success every single idea pivots or iterates to get into a big innovation. And that means there is a lot of egg on your face as you are doing this. And, and the more your investors are giving you a hard time, the harder that is. Even when you look at the, the great entrepreneurs in Europe, I mean, they went through the same journey. The entrepreneurial journey is the same no matter where you are. But here's really what changes. I think ultimately in the US, there is also just way more competition. And so then that's where you know, equity percentages get driven down, where there's just there's just more people competing for funds. And so we've seen this and that was one of the reasons I was so excited. I mean, we launched ClearBank in Silicon Valley. We were, you know, found a lot of product market fit because founders were just giving up too much of their company or even still there did not have access to venture capital. And so then every international market we've gone into, right, Canada, the UK, we've seen even stronger demand because the venture capital ecosystems are just less developed and they're less competitive. And so this gives entrepreneurs another chance. I mean, you know, you take a hundred thousand or a million or or five million pounds from ClearBank, like you can really drive your revenue. So by the time you are going to VCs, if you want to take that route, you have a really beautiful growth curve that's following behind you. But I do think it is one of the it is one of the things that really varies uh, internationally way more than it does in the U.S., and we've seen this time and time again, is that there is just not the same respect for failure. It is just seen as truly like you, you didn't make it. We've just had so many cool companies in the U.K., like Straight Teeth Direct. Uh, we back Temperly London, which um, you know is a great brand that Kate Middleton wears that um, has started growing way more online. But here's the last thing I'd say. I would be optimistic for all entrepreneurs because of this, because COVID just shaked absolutely everything up, right? Now you no longer, um, even when you're raising VC, it's all over Zoom calls. Now people are looking at businesses very, very different. And so I'm, you know, optimistic that this is actually now changing.
1: I agree. What's, I mean, you can't, they can't all be successes. So what's the biggest mistake that you've made at ClearBank?
0: I think as you grow and scale, I mean, certainly we've had companies in our, our portfolio that have not been successful. Um, we try and do a really good job of, of you know, sharing with the founders where you know they might be getting in trouble, trying to see if we can help, trying to see if we can use partners to help. Like we've done all sorts of things to really help our founders. I think my biggest mistake at ClearBank is. When you just get big and create a category, there's so much pressure of distractions. <laughs> I always say to the team, like, we have to play like this is day one. Like, we have nothing to lose. And even though that we've built something really special, like, we can't be getting in our own way, right? And that's what happens. And I'm, I'm making this transition now from a leader of what was a scrappy startup for years to now, you know, 280 employees. And it feels a lot different. And... Um, I'm figuring that out uh, every single day.
1: We'll be back after this short break, but stay tuned because we'll be exploring sacrifices and what could be the downfall of ClearBank. Every entrepreneurial journey leaves its marks. So I wanted to know what the biggest struggles and learnings have been for Michelle during the meteoric rise of ClearBank.
0: Here's actually the biggest insight I can give you the hardest part of an entrepreneur and scaling a company is that what made you successful in the early days? Everyone says, says no to you. And you're so used to people doubting you. And then when you get that win, you're like, Oh, it was worth it. It was worth, you know, just being super gritty and just determined and just persevering. And like, wow, all those people that that told me I was wrong. Now this finally worked. And then you have to realize that what got you to stage one and stage two as a founder is not going to get you to stage three. And I think one of the examples that I always personally looked up like was Uber, right? The things that made... Uber really successful in the first two iterations on, you know, being able to boldly go into cities and then start negotiating. And I knew people that started Uber competitors and like they would get death threats to their house. Like I don't think anyone gave them credit for how difficult the incumbent was to deal with. But clearly what made that company successful in the early days is what led to its downfall later and so you're playing this tug of war with yourself and your own personality type where the scrappy things you did in the early day that made you really successful you're like wait a second am i just am i doing what i should do or should i should i redo that and so at that point you are you are truly trying to take a lot of feedback from your team a lot of feedback from like your coaches and mentors and you're kind of figuring this out in real time but i think that is probably what i'm struggling with that's very that's very genuine what i'm struggling with most today as a leader of something that's scaling, you know, incredibly quickly.
1: Let's say we fast forward in it's five to 10 years in the future. And sadly, ClearBank hasn't worked out. Why do you think that would be? What's going to stop you from winning?
0: I think when founders stop fighting the good fight and they start believing they're invincible and they are not constantly innovating and disrupting their own product. And one of the examples we saw of this was, was I mean, I saw this this very early in my career was Blackberry. It was such a huge Canadian success story. And, you know, they all laughed when the iPhone came out. They were like, this is a kid's phone. <laughs> and the iPhone was not a kid's phone. <laughs> and it was the cockiness. It was getting distracted with other things. And Andrew and I have sneakers on them that say day one. Like our mantra to ourselves and to our team is like, we haven't built anything yet. Today is day one all over again. And we need to look at the market. We need to reevaluate if we still have the absolute best product, if we would still as founders take our own product, how things are changing, what else founders need, and do that with a lot of humility. Because when you get successful on something, especially when so many people have doubted you, it's very, very easy to say, you know, you got got the golden product. And that is why ClearBank will fail. If fundamentally as a team... We start acting and thinking like we've made it, and we stop that that innovation cycle, and we and we stop questioning ourselves. That's where founders and companies, you know, consistently get you know into trouble. And I think, you know, personally, I just like I'm like anyone else. I just worry about getting tired. I mean, this is not a part time job. <laughs> it's to say every moment of every day job. And I get that that is the requirements that is needed as an entrepreneur. This is not this is not a job where you get weekends off and evenings off and anything off. You just you are constantly thinking about the problems and challenges your businesses have and I don't mind that because I love what I do. Like, I feel I feel incredibly blessed and privileged that I get to do the work that I that I get to do. And I think about, you know, if I was born two generations earlier, I would have never had the shot to be this kind of entrepreneur, but I would have had this exact personality type. So I would have been very frustrated in this world. But yeah, I think then that I'm like, I think about, you know, my own like mental health and well-being and like, am I in my peak performance to continue to drive this forward? Because I think that's just as important as anything else.
1: And I mean, a couple of things I'd love to pick up on there. Like one of them, you said a couple of generations ago, you wouldn't have had the opportunity. Do you mean uh, on the basis of your gender?
0: Oh, I mean, I'm sure, right? I look at I look at my grandmother's career options. I mean, my grandmother is two generations away from me and her career options were kind of like school teacher, secretary, nurse. That was pretty close to, to what her options were. You know, I can tell you, Dan, I would have been a I would have been a terrible secretary. <laughs> I would have questioned everything my boss was doing. I would have done things my own way. It just wouldn't have been the same. And I don't, I I think I have a lot more patience for the innovation cycle than I probably do, you know, teaching kids how to read. But It's interesting
1: because you said that you've actually funded eight times more women um, than equity VCs have, um, all because you've removed unconscious bias. So I guess I wanted to pick up your your statement of who you are today and the career opportunity you've been able to fulfill in line with your personality and obviously market timings and the world just waking up to simple things like equality. And the fact that actually your own business has uncovered just how much work there really is to do if simply by using an algorithm, you've created eight times more female-funded businesses than one-to-one meetings. I mean, there is a lot to be said in those two statements coming together just on how much work needs to happen.
0: Completely. I think that that's why this model was just so explosive because, you know, yeah, two generations ago, people, the prevailing belief was not that women could be incredible founders, but I think women can be extraordinary entrepreneurs. And we've seen that time and time again, that they take, you know, totally different perspectives. They can build things that have, incredible brands and incredible meaning and yeah I mean we've backed eight times more women that's amazing to me and it's not because We gave them anything special. We actually just recognized that they had incredible businesses with incredible unit economics to begin with. And we didn't require this process of, you know, you pitch and you tell your story and you've got to sell a big enough vision. All of these human characteristics that we made up that were largely based on pattern recognition, right? Like VCs talked about how strong their pattern recognition was. Like This guy looked like Mark Zuckerberg and the way he talked and the way he thought in that early days, and I'm betting on another one. Of those, like our pattern recognition was: what's your growth rate? What's your unit economics? How much of your audience has you penetrated? And and do you have a chance to grow here? And it uncovered, I think, something that's that's pretty enormous. That is a that is a great opportunity. And again, it's like anything else: the more women we see being successful, the easier it is for the next generation to believe that that is a completely normal career path. And it's it's really hard to to be what you can't see. And so I think we're, we're hopefully going to just play a small part in doing that, which I, I'm really proud of.
1: Well, I hope you play a big part in doing that. Um, and I'm sure you do too. Okay, to become so successful and to achieve so much in your career, really the narrative that seems to be pretty common is there are sacrifices to be made along the way. You can't have it all. So if you're focusing so much on work, maybe other things are being sacrificed in your life. What are the sacrifices that you think you've had to make along the way to achieve the highs you've got to?
0: This is a really important perspective thing. The perception here on this is really important because objectively I have given up a lot. I don't have a don't have a permanent home. I don't have children. I missed hundreds of my friends' birthday parties along the way. I ended up working evenings and weekends and holidays and you know, got on a cell phone call in the middle of a wedding. Like I did all of those things, very real stories and, and happened. But I also have had so So much joy in doing what I was doing because I got to feel what it was like to build something and to build something with the people I love. And I don't think a lot of people get to experience what it feels like to have colleagues that are just your best friends in the world, right? Like Anatoly, who I worked with for the very first 10 years, is one of my closest friends. I mean, I work with Andrew, my partner, on building this business. Yeah, sometimes I get intense, of course, but like we get to work on the problems we care the most about and see the impact of those problems. And I think that, you know, it's like, it's anything else you can, you can look at having to work out every day as a punishment, or you can look at it as a privilege. I consistently, and I really try and do this. I, I remind myself that this is, this is a privilege, not a punishment.
1: Yeah. It's so beautifully put. And I love it. I find it very inspiring to, to hear you talk about how you work on your mindset. I was going to ask, what what would you say is the most limiting self-belief negative thoughts that you've had about yourself and how have they almost compromised moments in your career that could have gone differently?
0: Oh, I am like every other human being where all of the beliefs that I'm not smart enough, no one's going to take me seriously, like this is like everyone's just gonna laugh. This is all gonna fail again, except now it's gonna fail, and I'm a public figure, and everyone's gonna write about the failure. Cause usually at the beginning of your career, when you're no one, you know, it's like your six friends know that you failed and they kind of buy you a drink. Now it's like, okay, national newspapers are talking about this. You have those all of the time. And and here's the thing is they don't get a they don't go away. It's not because you're more successful, you don't have the shot at failing. I mean, Amazon can still fail and they're an incredibly successful company. But I think it is about constantly shifting your mindset. And I and we are in such a distraction filled world. You know, I always thought this was like kind of, I mean, I'm gonna just make fun of myself. Like I always just thought the whole thing was like a bit lame about like journaling and like, <laughs> anyway, I actually got a journal during COVID and holy smokes, are we super distracted in the day? Like sometimes I can't even remember what happened in my day. I'm like, Michelle, what did you learn today? Like forcing yourself to like really formulate some thoughts and some conclusions has been a super powerful exercise for me. Um, One of the things that I realized I was doing during COVID was I had gotten, and I think like most of us, into survival mindset. Like, I just need to survive another day. You know, just give me till Friday and we'll be able to have like a bourbon together. Like, it was like, let's make it through COVID. And I finally told myself, and it was only at the beginning of this year, I'm like, you got to change your mindset on this. You are not this is not 2021 for you is not surviving. It's going to be thriving. And so look at your perspective. I mean, I always have like, you know, super ambitious health and fitness goals. I love um, exercise and I find it's just so good for my, my brain and my body. And I'm like, wait a second, I can be in like the best shape of my life. Cause I have no cocktail parties and no restaurants. I have like, so all of these things that I just kept seeing were a negative and I can't see my friends and I'm an ultra extrovert. And so that is certainly a hard part of COVID for me. I was like, But wait a second, I can do this other thing uh, because I have no limitations in there. I think one of the things on mental health that really trips us up in society is that we have somehow, and I don't know where this narrative came from, we are expecting ourselves to feel the same thing every day and i think one of the things that i've really tried to recognize about myself is that this is going to be an entrepreneurial roller coaster and some days i'm going to feel on cloud nine and some days i'm going to be in the trough of depression and sometimes that will happen six times a day i will go up and down and up and down and up and down but that's okay it's like it's okay to to know that i won't feel the same way every day that you know hard things have ultimately been always worth doing and that you know the circle of friends and my circle of co-founders and the circle of people that are, are closest to me can have an enormous impact on my mood and so just choosing those people wisely has has paid off in spades and the things that actually get you most depressed are often not business problems they're human problems they're when an early employee leaves that was like one of your kind of ogs it's like those are actually the things that have you know the biggest toll on you and so you know, just continuing to focus on the circle of supporters you have in your life. uh, I think no matter what career you're in is just important advice.
1: Beautifully said. Okay. We have to wrap up now because, you know, you've got a bank to run, technically speaking. (laughs) So what is the best piece of advice anyone's ever given you in your career?
0: Never be comfortable. It is only in discomfort that you are absolutely growing. And it is some of the hardest advice to take because we are so mentally designed to be comfortable. <laughs> but I think about, you know, what did I do this week to push myself out of my comfort zone? And I'll tell you one closing story. So we're in the early days of building ClearBank. The team is just Andrew and, and me at the time. We're trying to get this deal done with Uber. And Andrew and I end up at this conference called Summit at Sea. And we sat down at dinner. And I can see that Travis Kalanick is having dinner, two tables over with Eric Schmidt. And Andrew looks at me and goes, we got to pitch them, right? We're like working on this deal. We're working with all these other people, but like, you just gotta go pitch Travis. And I looked at him and I go, they say, do one thing every day that scares you. And I walked over to their table. They were also eating, there was a huge table. They were eating 16 other people. And I walked over and I introduced myself, and we had a great, like, ten-minute conversation. We actually ended up closing this deal with Uber, but I remember, like, I was close to peeing my pants in fear. Like, that's the <laughs> only way I can describe it. These were not people I knew. I had a complete shot of being totally rejected. I had a complete shot of making my current situation worse with Uber than it, you know, because it was slowly moving along. But uh, you know, I think if you are going to use anything for yourself, that is the best model for growth.
1: Beautifully. And so well said, Michelle, it's been a massive pleasure interviewing you. Thank you so much for joining us on Secret Leaders.
0: It's been amazing to be here, Dan. Thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do.
1: Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests,
0: we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow.
1: Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders.
0: Their female-founded businesses did better and outperformed their male-founded businesses. In their top 10 companies, three of the companies had a female co-founder, which was vastly disproportionate compared to how many women they invested in.
1: He was talking about what, the, how the product resonated with caterers and retailers. And At the top of the list of things that resonated, he'd put two female founders. And so it's important not to just be happy with where we are today and to keep pushing the boundaries. That was a clip from the last live event we did in 2020, featuring the founders of Olio, Albright, Entrepreneur First, and Mr. and Mrs. Smith on International Women's Day, who are sharing their wisdom of what they've learned and can share about leadership from a female point of view. Tune in or you'll miss out. If you're enjoying our show and you're happy to help us, please can you get out your phone right now and rate us on your favourite podcast player because that's the stuff that actually makes a difference. Thanks so much. This episode was hosted by me, Dan murray Serta. It was produced by Rich Martell with editing done by Lower Street Media.